Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, my name is Sam Fankhauser. I'm co-director of the Grantham Research Institute here at the London School of Economics. And it's my pleasure to welcome you all to this seminar this evening on Good Derivatives, a story of financial and environmental innovation. It's an even greater pleasure to welcome and introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Richard Sandor. Richard is an American businessman, economist, and entrepreneur. He is the chairman of and chief executive of the uh, Environmental Finance product, Financial Products uh, Company. And uh, as you can guess from that name, he is better qualified than anybody I can think of to talk about financial and environmental innovation. In fact, he's written a book about it. And uh, you'll have an opportunity after the seminar uh, to look at the book and, and have, have your copy signed by, by Richard. And uh, if you're still deliberating whether that's uh, worth having uh, Richard's signature in, in, in your own book, let me tell you, um, if you Google Richard, you find that he uh, is referred to as the father of quite a lot of children, actually. Um, if, if, you, if you look at that, uh, he is referred to as the father of financial futures, and he's referred to as the father of carbon trading, and more generally as the father of environmental finance. So um, quite a lot of offspring there. The firstborn of those was uh, the financial futures. Uh, Richard sort of pioneered uh, work on that, developed the first interest rate futures contracts uh, back in the 1970s with the Chicago Board of Trade. According to Wikipedia, he also invented uh, the term derivatives. If that is so, you have a, a lot to answer for. <laughs> <laughs> the, the second child, in a sense, the one that is closer to my heart, is, is uh, uh, the environmental finance and carbon <coughs> trading um, that, that you are also been pioneering, um, including uh, as, as uh, the founder of the Climate Exchange family of companies. Those of you who are in, in, in the sort of carbon trading space will recognize that name. You will recognize the Chicago Climate Exchange. You will recognize the European Climate Exchange, the ECX, which are at the forefront of carbon trading uh, worldwide. As a, as a good businessman, Richard also knew when to exit from his successful investments, and uh, the, the, those are no independent companies. He will tell us a lot more about that experience uh, tonight. Um, let me sort of remind you, not all of you are probably as enthusiastic about environmental finance as, as, as we are at the Grantham Institute. Um, there will be a chance to ask your critical questions at the end, once uh, Richard has given his lecture, um, and we should all look forward to that. But uh, in the meantime, the floor is yours, Richard. Uh, Sam, thank you <coughs> for that uh, kind introduction. It's really a pleasure to be here with all of you tonight. Uh, the London School of Economics uh, holds a lot of uh, meaning to me. Um, the man who wrote the foreword to the book, uh, Ronald Coase, uh, is associated uh, with this institution. 
moreover, tonight's special because uh, Margaret Robertson and her husband, Nick Robertson, renowned in their own right. Uh, Margaret is the daughter of Preston Martin, who was vice chairman of the Federal Reserve Board and actually inspired the work on interest rate futures. So I kind of feel pretty good and pretty much at home with all of you folks. Um, economists have really given derivatives a pretty bad rap in recent times. Uh, no less than Paul Volcker said he thought the most important financial innovation of the 20th century was the ATM. Not exactly a ringing endorsement of, of something that I'm close to. Uh, Joe Stiglitz, a Nobel Prize winner in economics, thought that there was no such thing as a good complex derivative. Uh, why does that happen? You know, how does it come that financial innovation is held in such low regard? Um, everybody in this audience uh, heard of Henry Ford, makes cars. Anybody heard of Luca Pacioli? I would venture to say that Luca, and by the way, he's not from The Godfather, or any other such dire circumstances. He is no less than the father of accounting. And had the Medicis not had him, maybe there'd be no renaissance. If there was no limited liability corporation in Amsterdam in 1605, perhaps a lot of Europe's preeminence would not be there. Why don't financial innovators like Luca or people like that get credit, or how does this value, more importantly, of financial innovation disappear? I think it disappears for three reasons. Number one, the products tend to be wholesale and not retail. So unlike a Ford car, nobody knows about a certain kind of accounting. The second thing is, these tend to be collaborative, much like films, and this comes well before the concept of auteur was known in film, and so they get brushed aside that way. They also tend not to be patentable, so they don't get associated with any individual who becomes wealthy from the process or renowned because of it. But I want to talk tonight about good derivatives. The first thing is, what's a derivative? When I was working on Ginnie Mae futures uh, way back um, in the late 60s and early 70s, people said, what is this that you're working on? And I said, it's a derivative. And by derivative, I mean it's derived from something else. Okay, That was the meaning. It was essentially you had corn, and then you had corn futures and options. You had treasury bonds, and you had treasury bond futures and options. So it is derived from another in instrument or commodity. What's a good derivative? A good derivative is one that's regulated on an exchange, transparent, and centrally cleared and performs an economic function of risk transfer. And corn and treasury bonds and carbon fall into what I would call the good derivatives category. 
There were approximately 400 trillion of them traded in 11. And 400 or trillion or less in 07 or 08. No failures, no government bailout, no TARP money, and no problems whatsoever. Well, if a good derivative is one traded on an exchange and, and regulated and transparent, what's a, a bad derivative? One that's opaque, isn't centrally cleared, and is unregulated. What's an example of a bad derivative? Greek sovereign debt, okay? In 2005, you could buy insurance on the default of the Greek government. It cost about a quarter of 1%. Since 1829, the Greek government, according to Ken Rogoff at Harvard, defaulted every other year from 1829 until 2005. You could write this insurance with no margin, no counterparty guarantee, and no publication of prices. And that, the collateralized default swap market, which is called a swap, because if it was called what it is, insurance, it would have been subject to regulation. So in fact, even the name CDS is opaque and doesn't tell the story of what it is. Derivatives, good ones, have grown dramatically uh, since 1970. In the 40 or so years that I've been involved, in 1970, there were about 13 million contracts traded worldwide, maybe 14 million. In 2010, there were 21 billion plus a compound annual growth rate of 18% plus a year. The only thing that grew more than regulated transparent markets were computer chips, 18% a year. Why? Almost all of it is due to new products. In 1970, there were no energy derivatives, there were no interest rate derivatives, there were no foreign currency derivatives, the only thing that really existed, 40% of the trade, was soybeans and its products. Now, the market capitalization of just U.S. exchanges currently is about $32-$33 billion. The market capitalization of the top five airlines in the U.S. is about $24 billion. So derivative exchanges have about 50% higher capitalization than the airline industry in the United States. For these markets to work well, and they have to work well when they're regulated, they need to have an economic function. They have to have risk transfer. And the people who get rid of their risk want to buy price insurance. And then there are people who take that risk, and they're called speculators. So we have hedgers, people who want to get rid of risk, and speculators who want to assume the risk. Here's a thought that's not too popular. 
okay? Speculation is very important. And let me tell you the difference between gambling and speculation. In gambling, you create the risk for leisure time purposes. There is no risk until you build the casino or the racetrack. In speculation, the risk exists. Soybeans go up and down. The pound goes up and down. Interest rates go up and down. Nobody's built it for a leisure time activity. The question is, who bears that risk? And if we take a look at speculation and looked at it in another light, its value becomes even clearer than it does in corn or interest rates. And let's take a look at Stephen Jobs. What did he do? He got rid of the financial risk associated with building his company to speculators. They were called private equity or venture capital, as did Page at Google, as did Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook. All of those folks transferred their financial risk and assumed the technological risk. So speculation, per se, depending on how you look at it, has a real social function. It's been unpopular for a thousand years. Most recently, in the last century, Franco had a big problem. He was the dictator in Spain. Food prices were going up. He invited all the speculators to Madrid to talk about speculation and its negative impact on food prices. He wanted to solve the problem. He did. He had them all murdered. And it worked. Food prices came down. The only difficulty was the next year there was a famine and there were no buffer stocks left. And without speculative stocks, famine ensued and the country was in bad shape. Let me go through some quick examples as, a, as uh, might be illustrative of the benefits of good derivatives. In the United States this year, we're having one of the worst drought in history. Food prices, corn, beans, almost record levels. Anybody hear about problems? Food's on the shelf. Every year the U.S. consumption of food, the disposable income needed drops. It's been as high as 25%, it's down to 15%. No riots, no problems, no famine, nothing wrong. Let me take another one, transportation. The only airline that hasn't gone bankrupt of the major five top is Southwestern Airlines. It hedged its fuel for a number of years. I'm not saying that's the only reason. They had a different business model, but it worked. Let me talk a little bit about Ginny Mays. Ginny Mays are a mortgage-backed security. Back when I was teaching at UC Berkeley in the Jurassic era, uh, California was an undeveloped country. Uh, it had to pay its depositors 1% higher than New York saving banks to attract the capital. 
because all of the demand for new housing was in the West and all the money was in the East. And so before the existence of that market, people would meet in Arizona, pick over loans one by one, and then buy and sell them in a very cost-destructive way for homeowners. Once we had Ginny Mae's security, which was a portfolio of mortgages and traded futures, the spread between the price at which the mortgage was originated to when it was sold was 2%. When futures began, it was three quarters of a percent. We traded these futures in minimum increments of a 30-second. So the spreads dropped. People in the finance industry talk about liquidity, but liquidity is just another name for transaction costs. What does it mean in common sense, practical terms, if the spread goes from three quarters of a point to a 30 second? It means that the average homeowner saves $6,000 a year over the life of a mortgage. So it, it profoundly affects the ability to own a house. Interest rate derivatives. How about those? Not one bank failed in the 07-08 because of interest rate risk. The most important input they have and the grist for the mill, money, and its price, interest rates, didn't cause a single failure. In the 80s, we lost five, 6,000 SNLs, thousands of banks, credit unions, et cetera, but interest rate risk has disappeared from the front pages as a cost of bank problems. It is relegated to something small, and that's the principal commodity they deal with. The 10-year note futures began in 1982. From 1776 to 1982, the U.S. had about $35 billion of 10-year debt. We issue, sadly, about $23 billion a month now. The spread was at conservatively an eighth of a point. Futures began, good derivatives began. It went to a 32nd. What does three 32nds mean? It subsequently went to a half a 32nd. What does three and a half 32nds mean? It means the United States government saved $500 million last year in interest rate costs. It means means that pension funds, university endowments, insurance companies save $10 billion for the benefit of retirees and other sorts of folks. That reduction in friction and transactions costs was absolutely critical. Let me talk, if I can, about perhaps, and the subject of, of this is a, a predicate, uh, all of the other derivatives, to the first use, widespread use, of derivatives in the <coughs> environmental area. In the 1980s, the United States was racked by acid rain. When you burn coal, 
Sulfur goes into the atmosphere, combines with oxygen, clouds pass, and you get acid rain. It was such a large problem that even Michael Douglas made movies called Black Rain. It was a metaphor that everything was wrong. It was not only going to do that, it was going to destroy, because of the Russian coal-fired burning plants on the Baltic, it was going to drift over, ruin Scandinavia, ruin the UK. This was a massive problem. For the first time in 15 pages, the United States allowed the trading to achieve reductions through what was then called cap and trade. The origin of cap and trade lie here at the London School of Economics from Professor Coase, who wrote an article in 1960 on the theory of social costs. And he kind of suggested, look, you can take emissions and mandate that everybody cuts them by 10%. Or you could say everybody has to cut by 10%, but if one entity can do it more efficiently and sell, it can sell its excess reductions over 10%, then others who couldn't comply immediately could buy them. And the simple answer was if Margaret Nick owned the utility and they could cut by 20%, and I couldn't because they had the ability to change boilers and, and take low sulfur coal and burn it, and I couldn't modify my boilers. They could cut by 20. I keep mine level. I buy their 10% excess reduction systemically. The system has 10% across the board reductions. I don't have to close my plant and fire people. I can hedge myself by buying somebody else's reductions. By last year, the 18 million tons were down to 3 million tons. The EPA estimated that it cost the US about the private sector $2 billion. On the other hand, the reduced cost in medical expenses associated with lung disease was $123 billion one year. And they haven't got the precise estimate, but it saved 32,000 lives at a minimum and maybe up to 42,000 lives a year. This program has fallen into disrepute. Cap and trade is complex. It's difficult to understand. You can't explain it. That may be the case, but the Board of Trade held an auction after the EPA program started, and the winners, the people who bought these allowances and retired them, was a class of fifth graders from upstate New York. And to teach them about cap and trade, their professor gave out the right to chew gum for two hours a day. And those kids that didn't want to chew could sell them to other kids who wanted to chew more than two hours. <laughs> then they reduced the supply of rights to chew to one hour a day. And ultimately, all chewing came down. And the teacher was very happy. 
This seems to be something 11th graders can understand. I have a great deal of difficulty in getting this concept across in my capital, Washington, D.C. And I bring up the fifth graders uh, because it isn't that difficult. Let me shift over to carbon and just uh, on that for a a few moments. Uh, As Sam indicated, when you build a market, and that's what I've chosen to do for a living, you've got to look at four pillars. You've got to look at legislation, which is enabling. You've got to look at regulation, which is a facilitator. You have to look at the cost of building an institution and a complex web of people that have to be educated, regulators, legislators, accountants, lawyers, traders, back office people, technology providers. So it's a vast network of sociological, political, and economics that intersects to form a market. We started building a voluntary cap-and-trade market in the United States. And everybody said, you will get nobody to join without legislation. Nobody's going to mandatorily, by private contract, agree to reduce their emissions without a law. And we said, partially inspired by Professor Coase, nobody thought that lighthouses were ever private entities. But he went down to the 19th century British history and found that there were for-profit lighthouses, and ship owners could have been free riders and not paid, but actually they joined these consortiums of lighthouse owners. Inspired by that, I kind of went out, and I'd gotten accustomed to getting thrown out of most places uh, and taking on a challenge. In the 1970, I was told I should go back to Berkeley and teach because interest rates didn't fluctuate, and there was no need for them. So the challenge in front was try to convince companies to cut their emissions by 6%, build an institution, in fact, design a private Kyoto, get a reduction schedule, have industrial reductions or project-based credits like reduction of methane, reforestation, and build a whole institution. As I said, you know, it was a daunting task, but the people out there really wanted it. We ended up with 400 companies, 17% of the Dow Jones, 11% of the Fortune Top 100, and 25% of the power companies. United Technologies, IBM, Intel, American Electric Power, Reliant Energy, NRG, Honeywell, Ford, International Paper. And what did they do? They actually reduced their emissions by 400 million tons, more than France emits in a year. Anyway, that morphed on and and, and went into its own, and it was there to prove the concept. And it did with good results. And the question is, what's happening to cap and trade now? Where it is, is it alive, and what are the future prospects? And let me kind of tell you one example as a prelude 
to the last 10 minutes or so, then I'll talk and then you can throw it up. I want to a point I want to make, and it's very timely because it's Europe and there's a significant amount of debate about the cost of carbon reductions, particularly certified emissions reductions. <clears throat> we went out to India and we convinced a not-for-profit in Kerala, which is the poorest province of India, less than a dollar a day income. And we saw that there was, because of the sacred nature of, of cows, there was a lot of animal waste scattered around. So those folks were encouraged to buy anaerobic digesters. And what that's a fancy word for taking a bunch of animal waste, putting it in a garbage can, letting the methane rise out of it after you've covered it, and run a tube into a house. If you do that, the methane doesn't escape into the air. So you stop a global warming effect. In addition to that, they could sell the carbon credits at 2 or $3, not too far from where international credits trade today. We got 3,000 rural poor in India the first year. We got 15,000 the next year. We got 25,000 families the third year. And by the year we closed the exchange, there were 100,000 rural poor collecting 10 to $20 a year. Not only that, it solved the millennium gold problem. The people who foraged for wood were almost always little girls. They couldn't go to school, and they had to collect the wood to be burned in the house. So all of a sudden, there were 100,000 families who were getting 20 bucks a year, and that many girls who now could go out and potentially go to school. So what's the point of this? Price is a very important signal. And even a low price can change behavior dramatically. Let me talk now about how's Europe doing? By 2012, under the Kyoto Protocol and the European Union's emissions trading system, emissions were supposed to be reduced by the end of 2012 by 8%. They're down by 17%, double the goal that they set. <coughs> in spite of that, in the last year, if you Google, European Union and pricing, you get 200 negative articles. And nobody points to the fact that the EU ETS, as Danny Kellerman at MIT said, is the reference price for the world. There's constant criticism that it hasn't worked. Nobody's looking at the environmental objective. They're looking at the price. And I think it's important to recognize that the EU ETS is a signal for the world. In the US, we had a mandatory program in the Northeast called REGI. And while November 6th, our election might be very important, and November 8th, 
the choice of the new leadership in China may be important. There's another date you should watch. It's November 14th. And it's when California begins its cap-and-trade program. It's already got 6,000 open interest in options and in futures. And for good or bad, and having come from that state, California is a trendsetter, for good or bad. Facebook, Avatar, you know, Apple, all of those things, Google, all the things you may or may not like. Medical marijuana, uh, <laughs> all of those things, you know, seem to emanate from that western state. And I would suggest that, that you share the thought with me that American policy isn't necessarily the policy of Washington, D.C. And in fact, we may see a revival of cap and trade in the United States. That's the great hope. But even not, it's existing with an international treaty between California and Quebec, which can start. It's nowhere to be seen in Washington, but if you look at the map, creativity is inversely proportional to the distance from Washington, D.C. <laughs> the further you get, the more it increases. So China, in 2013, has seven pilot programs, five provinces and two cities. I gave a talk at Yale four weeks ago, and in the audience was the vice governor of Guangdong, which is kind of the northern England or the middle west of the United States, where all the manufacturing goes. And I said, next year there are going to be seven. He raises his hand and said, no, now. It's going on now. And so there are seven exchanges. I gave a talk at Peking University. And I talked about this, and the dean kind of signaled, get rid of the Mandarin and elevate your talk. Elevate your talk. You're talking down to these students. Well, about halfway through the lecture, I'm starting to get really intelligent questions, and I'm getting a little nervous at this point. Uh, I had underestimated. And then a young woman who might have been 21 years old, soaking wet, raises her hand and asks me why there was a contango between European Union carbon prices and the U.S. Peking University has an undergraduate emissions trading club. Peking University has an undergraduate emissions trading club. It's not only China, it's India, which is going to start provincial markets. It's Brazil with a Rio market. It's Korea, whose parliament voted 98% to go for cap and trade. And even Vietnam, okay, has put up a flag and saying it's studying these. So cap and trade, I don't think, is dead. Another food for thought. Let's talk about new risks and where the problems are going to come from. This past week, we had a hurricane in New York, which tragically has left millions without power. Very, very difficult. 
Fukushima, 200 billion plus. Katrina, a big 100 billion plus. Sandy, probably 30 to 50 billion dollars. The United States has a GDP of 16 trillion dollars. That covers all the risks associated with hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, and all of the lives lost as a result of that. Anybody care to guess how much the policyholder surplus, the capital is available in the insurance industry to cover the $16 trillion economy? It's about $500 billion. Food for thought, there's risk. Why? Because if I said, let's all of us form a new company, I have been an entrepreneur, I'd say, here's what we ought to do. We ought to go to California and walk on the San Andreas line and find the highest risk quake that we can do and write all the insurance we can in the highest risk areas. Two outcomes. There's no earthquake and we make a boatload of money or there's an earthquake and we give the keys back to the state of California and the federal government. There are no capital requirements in that business. Food for thought is the next systemic problem coming from a catastrophic event. And the insurance industry, because no governor is going to make a homeowner who's lost their valuables and their life go without their home and so it'll become a federal or a state problem. Food for thought. Three. Regulation. Legislation. Food for thought. There's inflation in legislation. The U.S. Constitution is six pages long. The bill establishing the Federal Reserve Bank is 25 pages. The bill establishing the Commodity Futures Trading Commission that regulates all the derivatives that work beautifully, 150 pages. Sarbanes-Oxley, 60 to 70 pages. The Dodd-Frank legislation is in excess of 2,000 pages. It is longer than the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the Koran combined. <laughs> Food for thought. If you can govern 3 billion people on this planet with religious tact, how come you can't figure out how much capital a bank should have? I teach at the University of Chicago, and if somebody came and couldn't describe something like Dodd-Frank in a page or so, I would kindly suggest that perhaps finance is not the career for them. <laughs> Food for thought. Credit ratings. Right now, there are four companies in the United States rated AAA. There are 14 countries in the world rated AAA. How many securities were rated AAA by Moody's and S&P before the financial breakdown? Just under 17,000. 
food for thought are the rate are the rating agencies the solution or perhaps something else food for thought last one uh, we have something going on today called LIBOR. Everybody, anybody know what LIBOR is? It's a big rate-fixing scandal going on. LIBOR is giving derivatives a bad name. LIBOR is not, is not a market, okay? It is estimates by 18 banks of what an interest rate is. It is not backed by their mouth, okay? In fact, there's a simple way to solve the whole LIBOR problem. Just make anybody who submits an estimate of what the interest rate is be prepared to lend $25 million. Put your money where your mouth is. That doesn't stop collusion. So how do you stop collusion? Let's say there's collusion and the interest rates put too low. So then, if they would have to put out 25 million at the stated rate for LIBOR, make them put out 100 million at a half a percent higher. And nobody could argue that was bad because if you said the rate was 2%, why wouldn't you be willing to lend 100 million dollars at two and a half percent? So make them put out a schedule of demand and supply for funds where they have to act on it. And basically, I do think that there is integrity in the banking system. I just think we got a process. I'll go back to you, Margaret, when, when I was working on financial futures in the 11th district, that, excuse me, in the Federal Reserve District in Northern California, Variable rate mortgage were set to deposit rates, a real rate for real dollars on deposit. And the only thing I'm suggesting is that we could solve a lot of these problems if you did that and on top of it did it through a regulated exchange, okay, in which there was federal oversight so that the supply and demand for funds would go through a central clearing corporation and be adaptive. What have I said, okay, just to, to sum up briefly? That there are things called good derivatives. They work in copper, in corn, in interest rates, in foreign exchange. 400 trillion traded without any problems. They were regulated, transparent, and centrally cleared. 700 trillion of OTC <coughs> derivatives not the good ones trade annually. And there's a lesson to be learned, and in fairness to Dodd-Frank, it starts to attack that lesson about transparency and centralized and oversight. I just want to say that we've given examples of that. We've talked about the environment. What is the future? I think the biggest challenge we will have of the 21st century is water. Okay. Only North America, South America, and Europe are long water. China's short, India's short, Africa's short. And we've got to look at pricing water. 
not the kind that you need to live every day. You need 20 or 30 gallons per capita for hygiene and hydration. That's your God-given right. But if you take a two-hour rec recreational shower, you ought to pay for it. If you build a golf course in the desert, you should pay for it. If you plant Kentucky bluegrass in Arizona, you ought to pay for it. 20 to 30 gallons a year. Albuquerque has 175 gallons a day per capita, when all you need is 20 to 30 for your health and your hygiene. So I think water is the next frontier. And I think that pricing water will be there. In summary, let me just say, you know, derivatives, they're like hammers, okay? They can be used to smash somebody's skull in, or they can be used to build, ho build houses. So particularly for all of the young people here, if you're going to get into these fields, please build houses. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. I see the hands already going up. Um, so let's uh, immediately go and collect maybe two, three questions at the time. Let's start straight in the middle. Um, please wait for the microphone. Second instruction, please introduce yourself. Third instructions, please keep your questions short. Thank you. Hey, uh, I'm Taha Asun. I'm from Haverford College in the States. I'm a visiting student at Oxford University. My question is in regards to uh, the cap-and-trade industry and what does the regulation look like in the cap-and-trade industry? What's the frequency of shirking? And then on top of that, is there another incentive structure that can be built that doesn't set a standard for uh, the amount of emissions that you should be emitting, but rather incentivizes uh, innovating new, new ways of business practice that actually lead to uh, the most efficient levels of business and the most green uh, levels of business? Okay, I, I think that, the, I'm not sure of the first question. The second question is, are there other ways than cap and trade? Sure, okay. Um, I was part of a company called Sustainable Asset Management. And one of the things that we did, we had advisors from Dow Jones, and we made sure that our companies that were part of the program were listed in a Dow Jones Sustainability Index. We wanted outcry to come from shareholders to change behavior of, of management. And I can talk all I want about talking individual companies to join, but it's a very different picture that if you talk to the health and the safety people in a company than when you talk to the CFO and ask them about their stock price. That's one. Two, there's lots of things that, that can occur. You need businesses to go to scale. So you can have subsidies, you know, to get scale up where they're not needed. So there are a lot of policy tools that can be used in conjunction with cap and trade. The only, and not, it's not the only tool. It is one of a complex set of tools that are available for policymakers the point that I, I try to make here 
is, and it's a great question, it's not the only tool, but price is powerful. It changes the way you think about things. Let's stay in the neighborhood just next door. Uh, thank you, uh, Misha Klamesh. I'm a journalist. I work for Digi Press, the Japanese news agency. Um, I recently um, uh, interviewed a commodities analyst called Professor Agiman. Um, she's uh, uh, head of uh, the commodities sort of center at Burbeck College. And um, I was asking her about speculators uh, and about um, uh, how that there's been a lot of thing in the press about uh, speculators um, uh, inflating food prices um, and creating inflation on food. And she was mentioning the fact that increasingly we're going to have more and more food crises with climate change and that now, now uh, uh, demand is simply exceeding supply. And she said that, um, it, that maybe that when we think about um, speculators that it can be a bit of a easy for politicians when you're at Davos or the IMF or wherever to sort of blame speculators for sort of raising prices. And that's, that's an easy populist answer when actually dealing with much more, you know, harder fundamental questions about, you know, simply there being more, more people. What, if, what is the So the do you agree with that? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> the okay. speculation is a lightning rod, okay? And, and I think she's right. There is no evidence whatsoever that high food prices today are caused by speculators. None whatsoever. There's, it's fully regulated. It's transparent. It's clear. I'm just waiting till some ambitious person starts blaming speculators out of the fourth estate or out of the government. Somebody will say, uh-oh, we got problems. And it's easy to demonize. You know, you buy and sell things and make money. But that's not what it's doing. It's taking risks from people who don't want it. So I think it's a real good point, and I think it's one that, that basically needs to be emphasized. Yeah. Wow, that was uh, quite a talk. Thank you. Um, right, um, there's so many uh, points, but essentially what you're talking about is, is the financialization of, of nature and other aspects of the natural environment which are essential for life. And you're talking about putting a price on those, um, most likely so that people like you and insurance companies that you mentioned and the US government can continue to get rich. Um, this, 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 is, this is shocking. You know, this is, I, I can't believe that the LSE has given a platform for you to speak. Um, it's disgusting what, what you're actually talking about. You're, you're talking about a plutocratic vision so that people like you can profit out of disaster. Well, let, let me respond because I, th I think that the intellectual point is how do you ration, okay? Price is one way to ration. And there's other ways to ration. There are subsidies, there's redistribution, but... There are two issues in economics, and I think this is, again, because it's students, and, and I think Sam will be taking an opportunity for a mini lesson in economics, okay? There are two issues in economics. One is production, and the other is distribution, okay? In production, we try to figure out how to make the pie as large as possible, make everybody's welfare as, as good. It's an engineering problem. That's a very separate problem from how do you distribute the pie. 
And all I'm saying is I don't have a problem with distribution of that pie in whatever way the policymakers feel, whether that's increasing taxes, doing things of that nature. But when you're going to cause the pie to shrink, okay, you're going to make society poorer and have less to distribute. Question up in the middle. Hi, I'm Arshmith Darcy. I'm a freelance legal reporter. Um, you mentioned Southwest Airlines. Um, what are your thoughts on the EU ETS's inclusion of um, the aviation industry, and um, how do you think that the airlines should respond? Do you think that they should also adopt um, similar hedging strategies and business plans um, as Southwestern Airlines? Yeah, I, the, the question is, to repeat the, the uh, point that's made, uh, do I think that aviation should be included in the EU ETS? Please keep in mind that 8% reduction that was mandated and the 17% that was realized was without aviation and transportation, which represents fully one-third of the emissions for the EU. Look, it's a political lightning rod. I think that it should be included. I think the how and the mechanics of doing it have to be handled very sensitively given the state of the European economy, the state of the U.S. economy. And while I believe it, most art and economics, and it relates to this production distribution, is we're here and we want to get here. And most economists, okay, basically don't spend time on a critical path to get from here to there. And that's a sociological problem and a political problem. And I think that they're going to have to, and they can do it by allowing airline emissions to be included over a very long period of time, recognizing that, that they have to survive the current economic malaise. So I don't get religious about this. Um, and I don't get religious about that. And people, you know, say to me very often, uh, well, you know, you're getting polluters and, and whatnot. And the idea here is to reduce emissions, okay, and to do it in a way that makes society better off and to figure out the path. So the answer is yes, it should be included. The path is more critical than anything. Okay, what are we rushing that? Let's go way to the back and maybe let's two, take two, three questions together so that we uh, can speak. If I can just remember two or three together, Sam. Um, <laughs> I will try to remember them for you, but don't Thank bank you. on it. Um, hi there, my name is Tim Forsyth. I'm a professor here at the LSE. Um, I would like to just question how far you're, you're, you're mixing up pigs and cows here in your talk, in the sense that you're you're using constant references to commodity markets like oil, copper, currency, etc., where there's an under-driving under demand for the actual thing in order to do something else. I would like to suggest that the carbon markets aren't yet in that state. In other words, the, the, there are two demands for carbon purchases at the moment. One is amongst those users who actually have a hard limit because they're going to be regulated, and I think there are very few of those at the moment. Perhaps the ETS is one example. 
but the other is uh, people who just want to do it because they think it's a good idea. And I think what's the problem with that is, is that you're not really selling a hard commodity that will be used as something, but you're actually opening up carbon markets for use for all sorts of multifarious purposes, which are less difficult to regulate. So, for example, your example of the uh, chicken waste in Kerala, for example, was bought, I think, by people who just wanted to use it for public relations. Now, maybe there's nothing wrong with that, but that's a very different market from yeah, people I, who want I, to just reduce their carbon. I, let me say to you, I, I do think that there are lots of issues surrounding proper implementation. The, the largest is the ETS. I think it's the model for the world, for the United States and for other places. And as far as I'm concerned, I, there's no amount that I would spare in effectively regulating and making these markets transparent. Will there be people who abuse it? Yes. Is the carbon market not there? Yes. A couple of guys from Ohio named the Bright Brothers, okay, they, they flew for 60 seconds at 40 feet, and um, they didn't have safety belts, they didn't have night lights, and the problem that I have is that very often the perfect is the enemy of the good. You don't start flying with a Airbus or a 747. You have to build. Stephen Jobs put this trinketing together in 75 in San Francisco. It took 20 years to get to the web. And financial innovation is no different from industrial innovation. You're 100% right. It's not there yet. But neither was Facebook before the concept came out. Neither was the telephone before it was used. Neither was the telegraph. Most inventions, industrial or financial, satisfy latent demands, Professor, not overt demand. So if you're an inventor, your job is to get out there and make it fly warts and all. As long as you don't have it crashing and devastating people's livelihoods, then it's okay. If there was no risk, there'd be no progress. And I'm advocating taking risk under full government oversight and regulation with transparency. And if you want to move things along, and maybe you're right it's not there, Europe's down 17%. I got kids and I got grandkids. I don't like the risk-reward ratio of doing nothing. And so I come at it with, I'd rather devise something. That works, is a start, not the end, and modify it as you go along, just the way industrial inventive activity occurs. Okay, let's stay up there for a question or two more. By the way, these are all great questions, and I pretty appreciate the constructive criticisms of all kind. Um, I'm Larry Lohman from the Corner House. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure um, that uh, th there is no choice, that uh, it's either cap and trade or nothing. Uh, here in Europe, for example... Wait, 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 wait just for clarity question was asked before 
is it nothing or cap and trade? The answer is that's not the choice. The Philadelphia lawyer's question is, Richard, when did you stop beating your wife? Okay? The answer is I never started beating her, so I can't answer the question. So the, the, the relevant question, it's not cap and trade or, it's do you promote a price signal along with other policy instruments? Yeah, thank you. Um, the reason I asked that question. Well. The reason I asked that question is because we, we and here in Europe, we actually have had a choice over the past decade, maybe two decades. Uh, and one of the effects of the emissions trading scheme in Europe, so far, has been actually, it's resulted in a lost decade as far as uh, the struggle against global warming is concerned. Um, it's actually interfered with possible positive approaches to the fossil fuel problem. Both through offsets and through its interference with innovation, it's actually selected for delay in terms of addressing the issue of keeping fossil fuels in the ground. So I'm slightly apprehensive when you say that uh, the same model is going to be applied to water. Well, I, I wouldn't say, if the, if the question is, you know, I can understand the apprehension. I think it's not fair to Sir Nick Stern for the hundreds and thousands of people who pioneered this in Europe to say it hasn't had a, a positive effect. Go to China, go to California, go to other parts in the world, and there's been more people that have been motivated and educated educated as to climate change as a result of putting a price on it. So I'd be glad to be wrong, and I hope that you're going to publish some articles and, and prove that it's not been effective. But I would rather take you know, what limited personal experience I have and, and what little evidence I have and what little knowledge I have uh, from being on the ground I think the European Union has set the lights in motion for all of Asia on identifying climate change and maybe having a policy tool that will work. And I'd be happy to say that I think that, in fact, you will light the way for China and India to come around to addressing climate change through a policy tool that will be good for the Chinese in their fashion, good for the Indians in their fashion. So I would look forward to research that you have on it. And I'm, I'm, I don't have any dog in this fight. Uh, as Sam said, I sold the company. Um, I'm here because I, I really have a question of my kids and my grandkids and, and, and don't have a financial interest in it at this point. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to hear your evidence, and you can send it to me, and maybe we can have a dialogue about it. Right. We have time for two more questions, and I have a choice of hands. Let's go over there and then come here to the front. I should say for all those of you who have questions that can't be asked and answered in public, that Richard will, of course, be here afterwards signing his books, so you have a chance to talk to him then. Please. Hi, my name is John Ward. I'm a second-year student here at LSE. Uh, my question is, uh, why was self-regulation not sufficient um, in derivative markets? As in, why were private participants uh, willing to make decisions um, which were so detrimental to their, to their own? 
self-interest? Well, you know, self-regulation, I, I think, in some cases was okay with interest rate swaps and foreign exchange. In other instances, it wasn't okay. I come out of the regulated business, so I believe there are certain proper functions of government where there are externalities, education, medicine, environmental services, etc. And I think in that case, transparency trumps everything, whether it's what's in your food, to pharmaceuticals, to any other product you buy or sell. And, and if it's not there, then it's the proper role of government to say transparency is required. And I think we need to focus on that. Again, if, if you can separate out the economics of climate change or any of these things, please keep in mind regulation and transparency, the proper form of it, will get rid of a lot of these problems. Final question here from Trump. <coughs> Hi there. Um, great talk. I'm a physicist from Imperial College, so I'm by no means an economist. Um, basically, uh, from what I gathered, from what I know, I mean, fossil fuels are the cause of uh, sort of carbon emissions. They're the cause of the entire problem. And so, what I see that the that sort of the carbon markets kind of trying to do is is cure the symptoms as opposed to really, uh, in a sustainable ma ma manner. Uh, solve the problem, solve the really true underlying problem. So my question really is, what markets or financial instruments can be created in the future to try and promote sustainable development, sustainable growth, that really cures the, the problem and not doesn't just try to address, address the symptoms of, of carbon emissions? Well, let me first say I put up the SO2 example because it basically, it does cure the problem because the cap kept on going down in sulfur dioxide. It was a declining cap over time. So your emissions by law had to be each reduced in every time period the program was applicable. So it does do the job, okay? And the job was, and it did do the job to put people in the trading business out of business. Your job was to, my job was to put myself out of business, okay? It's like being a member of the Cancer Society. What do you want to do as a member of the Cancer Society? You want to put yourself out of business, right? So environmental objectives should be aimed at putting yourself out of business by driving the caps down over time so that you have a transformational event in the use of energy. And that's the goal. And as long as the cap keeps coming down, you strangle a snake. It doesn't have sufficient oxygen. And so in a world in which you had to reduce your emissions by 90%, whether it's 2050 or 2030 or 2075, that's a job for the politicians. And while I tease a little bit about it in the, the political world, these are smart, motivated people. They just have to come together on addressing these issues. So the cap can strangle the use of fossil fuels. And by the time they do, we're going to be solar power or wind or tidal power 
or something that will do it. My only point back again is that you keep on, remember cap and trade means a cap, and a cap that constantly goes down. You don't just put the cap on and walk away. <clears throat> I think you've been extraordinarily receptive. Um, I can't tell you again how proud I am to, to even have this brief association with the London School of Economics. To you know, all of you who are out there or students who are looking at it, there, there's going to be a need to ration these very scarce goods in, in your lifetime. Okay, It's not going to go away. The deniers of climate change can talk all they want. We need to get about solving the problem. I'm only suggesting you take the hammer, okay, and use it constructively. Thank you all very much. Well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Richard. Somebody asked halfway through uh, the presentation why we invited you. I think. The answer is we like interesting ideas, we like innovative thinking, we like debate. You have given us all of that, so thank you very much indeed. Thank you.